0: All right, Jesse. last week's story had a lot of listeners angry at the villains. What's the story this time around? An Amityville horror strikes again
1: when a good-natured gym owner named Alex Algieri is gunned down in the employee parking lot of his Long Island athletic facility. Authorities are left with a real whodunit. Until an informant comes forward to reveal that the mastermind of the murder plot may be the person they suspected the least. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi Andy, hi Jessie. Welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about sadness,
0: badness and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at lovemurderpod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love/murder a five-star rating on your
0: podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover our show. Also, if you are interested in supporting our show more directly, Please head on over to Patreon and find us where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the fancy benefits you get, like hanging out with us on Zoom.
1: Yay, which is so much fun. I can't wait to do that. We're actually, by the time this comes out, we'll probably be doing it very soon. Yeah. Well, this week, as always, we're also very excited to shout out all of the amazing new people who joined us on Patreon,
0: including Stephanie W., Ali M., and Dima A., Megan T, Carrie K, and Lindsay M, and Sarah B, Hannah A, and Stephanie K.
1: Thank you all for joining us on Patreon or just here to listen to us and subscribe and follow. Thank you all so, so much. I have so much to get back to for people regarding the researcher role. And I think what we're gonna end up doing, guys, is have a couple people be like my little like research fairy assistants. We just had so many wonderful people who were just amazing for the role apply that I cannot pick just one. So hopefully there will be some episodes coming at you all soon that will be assisted by our research assistants who I will be very happy to shout out at the beginning of every episode. But this episode, babies, I got to tell you, it's all me. (laughs) So I think we should just jump into it. Yes. Dolphin Fitness Club in Amityville, New York was still packed in the dark early evening hours of January 17th, 2001. The gym was one of the largest on Long Island, an airplane hangar sized building that advertised fitness amenities on the outer walls in big block lettering. The 24-hour gym had everything a health nut could long for. Childcare, could you imagine that at your gym? 24-hour childcare, so nice fitness classes of every form, full court basketball and racquetball courts, steam rooms and saunas, and even, this is early 2000s, a tanning facility. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I bet they had those little stickers that you put on too. Or, you know, those little Playboy Uh bunny stickers. Yep. And you could get the little individual packets of
0: lotion. Yeah. (laughs) Extra tanner.
1: Yes. So this branch was one of many dolphin fitnesses in the area, but it happened to be not just the biggest, but also one of the most popular. It was owned by best friends, business partners, and bodybuilding enthusiasts, Alex Algieri and Paul Rydell. Alex and Paul were usually joined at the hip. Both were bodybuilders themselves. They're both big, muscular men. Alex stretched to just about six feet tall, and Paul was a gigantic six-foot-seven, almost 300-pound mountain of a man. Oh, my goodness. Yes. They had bonded over a love of motorcycles and building muscles, and in 1998, they had made their dreams come true by opening this gym. Okay. Alex and Paul's hard work had paid off. The gym was very popular and very busy. And not just because it was January when people have resolutions and they get their buns in the gym, but in general, all of the time this place was popping because they had built a gym that was truly a community. Most of the core clientele were diehard regulars, and many of those regulars had become close personal friends with Alex and Paul. The energy and bright gym lights radiated out into the cold, dark winter night. Inside, Alex was on duty. Ever the social butterfly. He had hopped from the desk to the weight floor. He was connecting with patrons, giving people tips, and in general, just being a cheerleader for everybody who is working out as well as catching up with his friends. An aerobics instructor interrupted him to ask about a heart pumping mix that he had recently played over the loudspeakers. She wanted to know essentially if she could borrow his CD, which had the very good workout music on it for one of her aerobics classes. Okay. One of the shows that I watched mentioned that the particular song she was looking for was Ricky Martin's Livin' La Vida Loca. Stop. I mean, doesn't that immediately put you in a time and place? Yes. I mean, it gets the bodies moving. I get why that would be a great call
0: for a spin class or an aerobics class. It was probably on Jock Jams number five. Oh,
1: God, I love Jock Jams. It always gets me going in the morning. I try to sometimes with the kids in the morning if they're kind of lagging. I'm like, let's put on jock jams and have a dance party before you go to school. (laughs) Well, Alex, as usual, was very amenable. He cheerfully complied. He said, yep, I've got it out in my car. I'll just pop out back and I'll grab it for you. So he ended up weaving his way through the treadmills and the stationary bikes. He eventually went out the back door into the employee parking lot where his black GMC Yukon SUV was parked. The night was bitterly cold. This was January 17th. So when this comes out, it will be exactly 23 years ago to the day. And he did not have a coat on, but he also did not think that he was going to be outside very long. He was just going to pop into his SUV, grab the CD, and then go back. He was wearing kind of like athletic clothes, like a a tight-fitting black athletic shirt and track pants. And he opened up his car door and he reached in and he went to his center console, which is where he kept his CDs. And at that point, he heard something behind him. There was an unfamiliar voice saying something that he couldn't quite make out, grabbing his attention. So he backed out of his car and he turned towards the voice and he was immediately shot five times. Lead slugs ripped through Alex's neck and his upper body. Bullets that would likely have just about instantly taken down anyone that was less physically fit or large or had less emotional grit than Alex did because these bullets pierced his lungs and heart. Mm -mm. But somehow Alex managed to have the wherewithal to get his body back inside the gym so that he could get help. How? I have no idea, but he managed to stagger back in through the back door and actually enter the gym and the gym floor where he collapsed in front of his employees, his clients and his friends. And the last thing that he said was, I've been shot. So they called 911 right away, obviously. And there was some confusion about what had happened. No one expects somebody to be shot in the back of their own business, especially a really nice guy like Alex. He was also an electrician. So some people thought that he said, I've been shocked. They thought maybe he was doing some electrical work out back and something had happened.
0: But he was clearly bleeding and everything, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. When, but he was wearing a black shirt, so it wasn't completely apparent right away. And then people realized what was going on. And there were two people that were trained in CPR who immediately went to assist him. So when paramedics arrived on the scene, which was unbelievably fast, they got there very, very quickly. He still had a pulse when they rushed him to the hospital. But unfortunately, it had been very close up and the bullets were thirty-eight caliber and he had been fatally struck quite a few times that even somebody who was so strong and so kind of heart could not survive this. he passed away upon reaching the hospital. The athletic community who patronized the dolphin were left stunned and scared for if this could happen to Alex, it could happen to anyone. This was a man that did not seemingly have an enemy in the world, or at least one that they knew about. And the larger community of Amityville was left saddened and exhausted by another horrific event that occurred in this infamous town. Dolphin Fitness happened to be located only four blocks away from the Amityville Horror House. Ugh, four blocks. And that is where six members of the DeFeo family had been murdered, execution style as well, in their own beds as they slept on November 13th, 1974.
0: Was that a Friday? Do you remember?
1: It was a Wednesday.
0: That is even creepier. Something about that is even creepier. Yeah. Again,
1: senseless violence had come to the citizens of Amityville and everyone wanted to know why. A robbery? A mafia initiation? Could it have something to do with Alex's girlfriend or her family or his family? He did have a checkered past. And what of his so-called best friend and resident hothead Paul Rydell? It would take nearly a year before the murder plot that caused Alex's death would take shape. And it would reveal a sinister and senseless story of drugs, sex, and absolute blistering stupidity, as well as a mastermind that no one saw coming. For those of you who haven't heard about this case before, there is a big twist, but I'm not going to give too much away here because I know that, Andy, you have not heard of this case before. To that end, I can tell you that this story has been featured on several TV shows of the true crime variety, about five or six of which I watched, and I will list them all in the show notes, but I don't want to even give you the titles because it might reveal too much about the crime.
0: How many do you think there are? Like, what percentage do you think you watched? Do you think there's 10 and you watched six? So I watched all the
1: ones I could find easily on streaming. One show that won't give too much away because it is kind of the bread and butter of Love Murder is Scorned Love Kills. And so it was featured on that show. But I also found out that they've apparently rebooted Scorned Love Kills. They now have it Scorned Fatal Fury. Oh my God. But I could not find it. And so it looks like a lot of the same cases are used. So I don't know if they're actually rebooting it or just repackaging old content. If you guys have seen Scorned Fatal Fury, please let me know. I could not find it anywhere available on streaming. So I had just had to go back to the old Scorned Love Kills for that specific episode. So that was the only one that I could not find on streaming. Every other show I found available on some streaming service or to buy on Apple or Amazon. There's one in particular that I really liked, which I will get into later. And my main source, though, today is the book Lethal Embrace, written by former NYPD detective Robert Mladenich and true crime journalist and author Michael Benson. We are going to jump right back into where the investigation was taking place in Amityville, New York on this day, exactly 23 years ago. The police were immediately dispatched to the gym to question all of the clients. So they immediately shut the place down. They did not think that the shooter was still in the gym, but they wanted to make sure that anyone who was there at the time was going to give a statement who could potentially be a witness or has something to do with the crime. So they made everyone stay, they started questioning everyone in the area, they started processing the crime scene, but unfortunately there was very little physical evidence left behind. Only the bullets, four of which were still inside of Alex's body, and one of which had passed through essentially, and they appeared to be thirty-eight caliber slugs. An eyewitness who was walking her dog nearby said that she saw a white minivan peel out of the employee parking lot driven by, quote, a pudgy white man directly after the shots were fired. So now they believe that that might have been the getaway vehicle for the shooter. So they believed that the killer or killers might have been waiting for Alex to exit the gym. When he approached his car, they got out of the white minivan, got behind him, said something to get his attention. And when he turned They were essentially lying in wait so that they could get a very good shot off on him, which they did. At that point, they did have to rule out burglary. His car wasn't taken. His wallet was still on him. I think that there was some sort of cash still in the SUV. Obviously, this was a targeted attack. They considered whether this could be some sort of mafia or gang initiation, which does happen. I don't know if I've talked about this on a previous case, but when I was living in San Francisco, I dated a guy who owned some bars and restaurants. And he told me that right around the time we started seeing each other, one of his busboys had been shot and killed while taking the trash out in the alleyway behind the restaurant. And they discovered that it was a gang initiation. Ugh, that's so sad. It was just so senseless. It was just to get into the gang, you had to just kill someone, anyone, which was just horrible. And he felt terrible, obviously, about it. And I'm sure everyone involved in this case other than the killers did. So this does happen. And Amityville is only about 30 or so miles outside of New York City. It's not entirely impossible that this could happen. It definitely was targeted and someone had wanted Alex dead, but they could not find any evidence or there wasn't anyone talking on the streets that would say that that could be tied to this event at all. So if somebody was targeting Alex, the question became who? Alex was 32 years old at the time of his murder, and it seemed like he was almost universally liked. Hmm. Alex was born on September 18th, 1968 in Deer Park, Long Island. He was the middle child of three. He had an older sister and a younger brother. His dad, Sal, was a brilliant engineer who was born and raised in Brooklyn before getting his master's degree and starting a family in Deer Park. Sal, his dad, and Alex were a lot in like and personality, but not so much in their interests, education, or vocation. Sal had a master's degree, while Alex did not have much interest in school at all besides sports. Alex was a gifted athlete, he was a great team player. And in general, Alex was very popular. His dad, Sal, said that when Alex was confirmed by the Catholic Church, he had to write a prayer for his son. And he said, quote, I ask that he have love for people, that people care for him, and that he have the desire to be successful. All of my prayers were answered, but he was taken too soon. His dad went on to say that Alex was a happy, secure guy with a great personality who always had a smile on his face. That's not to say, however, that Alex was without flaws or hadn't done anything wrong in his entire life. He went through a very rough time when he was in his early 20s. His parents were divorcing. He was struggling with that. And he was also struggling to make his way in the world because college really wasn't Alex's thing. So he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And in the middle of all of this confusion and emotional upheaval, he had turned to crime. On July 23rd, 1991, 23-year-old Alex had been arrested for hijacking a truck carrying more than $200,000 worth of yarn. Yarn? I don't know if he knew exactly what was in the truck that he was hijacking. I think it might have been a crime of opportunity. He had pulled the driver out of the Mack truck and basically pulled him out and pulled down. And then he had hit the driver on the head with the butt of a pistol But he hit him hard. The driver did require nine stitches to his head to close the wound. Yeah. Alex hadn't gotten very far in the Mack truck that had been stolen before he was arrested. I mean, almost immediately, the police got him. This was a truck that was parked somewhere outside of JFK. There was speculation that this was some sort of mafia initiation because John Gotti had actually pulled a similar stunt when he was getting his start in organized crime. I guess he had hijacked a truck that was full of ladies' dresses. And he had been caught and arrested as well. So they thought maybe this was some sort of mafia initiation. In any case, Alex was found guilty of armed robbery and armed felony assault, as well as some lesser charges. And he was sent to prison where he served a couple years before his release. Everyone who knew Alex said that this had been a huge wake-up call. That he was at his lowest of lows when he went into prison and he came out determined to go on the straight and narrow, make something of his life. This was a huge wake-up call for him. With the help of his father, he had eventually become an electrician and he made a nice life. In the late 90s, he met Paul Rydell in a Gold's gym and the two bonded over riding motorcycles and lifting weights, which were their two shared passions. So they would go on these big motorcycle rallies together We talked about, I think, Sturgis or Sturgis, that huge one in a previous episode. So they did that together. And then eventually they had opened the Dolphin Fitness Club in 1998. And I believe that Paul was mostly operational and he funded some of the cash. Okay, cool. So he was more of the money guy. And Alex actually, because he was an electrician, did all of the electrical work and a lot of the more construction
0: and technical parts of the build out. So they built this from the ground up.
1: Yes. I think that the building was existing, but they had to make it into a gym. So it was a really large space. I think it maybe had been like a retail location before. And it was next to a bowling alley. They had to really turn this place around and make it into something that looked like a gym center. Gym and bowling alley are good
0: neighbors. <laughs> it is. That makes sense.
1: Alex now had a reputation as a solid son, brother, friend, businessman, and boyfriend. He had a serious girlfriend named Jean at the time of his murder. And by all accounts, Alex was really making something of his life. There was no evidence of any drugs in Alex's system. There was no evidence that anyone had been dealing drugs, even steroids, or involved with organized crime at the gym. Like this wasn't a front for anything. It really did seem like Alex had left a life of crime behind him from the moment he walked out of prison. The police looked at the possibility of a rival gym owner attacking Alex, but that was also a dead end. It didn't appear like the rival gym owner had anything to do with this, and the rival gym owner had a problem with Paul, not Alex. Okay? Alex's family and his girlfriend had no motive whatsoever to kill him, and they all were thoroughly alibied. So that left one person who was close to Alex. Alex's best friend and business partner, Paul. And plenty of people thought that Paul was to blame for Alex's murder. Right from the get, his family was pointing the finger at Paul. Wow.
0: That's sad because that they were like probably together every day and like trusted each other. They were very, very tight. So Paul was a troubled guy who,
1: like Alex, had gotten into trouble with the law when he was younger. And he was trying to get his life together. And unlike Alex, it seems like Paul was having a much harder time getting his shit together. 31-year-old Paul had been 19 years old when he was arrested for holding a gun to an undercover cop's head while trying to rob him of drugs. Yikes. Yeah, and the guy had been wearing a wire, so they have it on the wire... Of him threatening the undercover cop with the gun, and the undercover cop like crying and begging for his life, it was really horrible to listen to, and did not paint the prettiest picture of nineteen-year-old Paul, who is extremely physically intimidating because he's such a big guy. Yes. Yeah. Well, apparently, nineteen-year-old Paul had been robbing drug dealers as a livelihood, which is that's a that's a dangerous business to be in. Paul also had substance abuse problems that led him to make some less than ideal decisions. He would later say that his father had been largely absent from his life. He seemed to have split when Paul was very, very young, if not a baby. And Paul felt like his mother had been resentful of him his entire life. And no matter what he did, he could not please her. Paul excelled in football, where he put his six foot five or seven frame. 285 pound body to good use, which is funny because even within the same book, I found a description of him as 6'5 and then as 6'7. And then on the various shows I watched, he was anywhere from 6'2 to 6'5 to 6'7, but it seemed like 6'7 was the one that was reported. But even if he's just 6'5, that's really freaking tall. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if he's like almost 300 pounds, that's gigantic. So he was a very good... All-American football player, and he had even been given a sports scholarship to USC, University of Southern California, which is the sort of athletic program that feeds directly into the NFL. But Paul never got a chance to see if he could make it in college football or the NFL because he suffered a career-ending injury only, I think it was like his senior year or right before he was supposed to go to college. And then a year after that, he went to prison for six years for armed robbery. So I don't know if it was one of those things where he had this amazing opportunity, a full ride to USC. And then when the injury prevented him from doing that, he kind of just lost all hope. Yeah. When he got out of prison, he met Alex, who was roughly the same age and had gone through a similar experience. Alex's upbringing was much more loving and his parents were together for years and years during his formative years. But Alex had also struggled with his parents getting divorced, no longer having a relationship. He had also made some mistakes, even though he was generally a good guy. So I think they bonded over having some similarities in their lives. The guys had become instant best friends and then had become more than business partners. They became business partners, but they seemed more like brothers. Yeah, I mean, going and doing surges together
0: is, like, a big deal.
1: That's, uh, you're going to spend a lot of time with somebody. And also, think about how hard it is to start a business, especially, like, the one that they started that was so big with so many employees and so much renovations necessary. They were together a lot. Paul is on one of the shows that I watched, and he said for years, he and Alex were together for basically every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. Alex had opened the gym with Paul. He had stood by his best man when Paul married his wife, Leanne, in July of 1999. Alex was Paul's baby son's godfather. In 2000, however, their relationship had become strained. So this is about one year before the murder, kind of. It's like six months to one year. This is when there started being problems in their friendship. Paul had anger management problems. He was verbally abusive and physically intimidating to his best friend and allegedly to his wife, Leanne, as well. They said that there wasn't ever any evidence that he was actually, like, beating people up, but he had thrown something at Alex once, and he used his size to intimidate people in a way that was almost as scary as being hit, essentially.
0: Yeah. If you're being threatened by someone who is huge, that's just as scary.
1: Yes, exactly. And he was using hard drugs like crack cocaine, which doesn't make you any more reasonable or less aggressive. Due to his behavior, Paul and Leanne had separated, although Paul was seemingly trying to get her back at this point. And the last straw for Alex had been that he had recently discovered that Paul was skimming from the gym's bank account. So he was stealing essentially from the gym and thusly Alex. So the former best friends had fought about him basically embezzling from the company. And Alex had basically said, I want out of the business because I don't like the way you're doing it. Paul had a lot of the control, I think, in the business. And he said, I just want out. I just want to take a payout and leave because this is, we can't continue doing this together. He had shared his concerns with his father, and he had decided to just hang in there through January. He was going to get through January, and then he was going to have a meeting with Paul to discuss how they could legally separate. Because January was the biggest month in the gym, it also happened to be when Dolphin Fitness charged annual clients. So even if they were regular clientele, not newbies, that was when their annual dues came up. So that was a big money month. And so Alex wanted to make sure that all of that money was in the account before he took his portion. According to people who are close to him, he was ready for a new challenge. So now they're thinking maybe Paul had killed his so-called best friend to prevent him from leaving the business, to prevent him from getting the payout, or even I think they had some other shareholders and investors to prevent Alex from revealing to other people who are investors in the
0: business that Paul was stealing. And clearly not fit to be running the...
1: Yeah. They said that he was very highly functioning. I mean, I've never heard of a highly functioning crack cocaine user, but here we are, I guess. They said that he seemed to be still running the business okay. It was more that he was aggressive and unstable in his personal relationships. Okay. Yeah, every single person who was close to Alex felt very strongly that Paul had something to do with Alex's murder. Paul did have a solid alibi. He had been out to a restaurant with some friends at the time of the murder, and then he had gone out with them afterwards before anyone could get in touch with him to tell him that Alex had been murdered around 7.20, I think 7.25 p.m. So he was with people all night, multiple people. But that still didn't mean that he hadn't arranged for the murder or
0: had something to do with it in any case. Yeah, especially if he is still doing hard drugs, he might possibly have a connect.
1: There was a lot of little underworldy connections that Paul had going on. So this is not a crazy leap to assume that he might be able to get somebody to kill his business partner if he found it necessary. The suspicion was so great that many people at Alex's funeral were visibly uncomfortable. In Paul's presence. Sal, Alex's father, had allowed Paul to attend the funeral. But even as he came, he said that he just had this feeling in his bones that somehow Paul was
0: involved. Wow. It's crazy when that many people are all in tune with what they actually think happened.
1: Yes. And that's, I mean, it was really uncomfortable for Paul, of course. And Sal was confused about the feeling because he said that he felt very strongly that Paul was involved. But Paul did seem upset. He was shaking. He seemed very, very sad and devastated about this. He seemed shocked. And so people were like, well, is Paul this upset over losing Alex? Is this grief or is it guilt? What's going on here? Paul later said, quote, a lot of people had a lot of questions. A lot of people kind of pointed the finger toward me. We were partners. I guess it seemed to people like I had something to gain by killing Alex. I had a past. I'd gone away when I was younger and Alex had no enemies. The police had noticed that as well. Everyone the detective spoke to said that Paul was the troublemaker, not Alex. Paul himself admitted freely that if anyone rubbed people the wrong way at all or had numerous enemies, it would have been him. He even says on one of the shows like, I'm the one more likely to start a bar fight than Alex by a million years. The loss of his best friend and the sneaking suspicion that Alex had taken a bullet meant for him, because he is now thinking, Alex had no enemies, maybe somebody was trying to kill me, had caused bad boy Paul to reconsider his priorities. He needs to reprioritize his life right now. He kicked the drugs and he ended up reuniting with his on-again, off-again wife, Leanne. The couple and their son moved down to Florida where Leanne had family. So this was supposed to be a fresh start so that Paul could protect his family. He was still flying up to run. There was two gyms that Paul ran, this one that he owned and then another one that I think he opened and owned. But he wanted Leanne and their son Nicholas to stay in Florida where she lived near her mom because he was afraid that actually somebody had been trying to kill him and that he didn't want his wife and son to be collateral damage. Like it seemed like his best friend might have been. As the months went on, Paul and Leanne seemed to be healing. They were brought back together by tragedy, but Alex's other loved ones were left bereft and without answers. So Paul's like moving forward with his life. He's moving on. He's trying to protect his family. He's getting back together with his wife. But Sal and Alex's siblings and his mother were devastated. They had no idea what happened and there's no answers. And At the time, the authorities had very few answers. They were looking into every possibility, but everything was coming up with a dead end. And then finally, almost a year after the shooting, answers came when a low-level crook snitched, and all of a sudden, a trail of evil breadcrumbs appeared that could be traced back to the shooter and the mastermind behind the plot. And when this plot was revealed, it was one of manipulation, betrayal, and considerable
0: stupidity. Oh, you had me at evil (laughs) breadcrumbs.
1: All right, ladies, I have a New Year's resolution for you that's actually extremely easy to keep. This is the year to finally stop wearing uncomfortable bras. Support for today's episode comes from my favorite, Honey Love.
0: Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game, so you no longer have to deal with uncomfortable underwire without sacrificing support you'll immediately feel and see the difference. Their bras are so comfortable, you will not want to take them off.
1: For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com lovemurder. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com lovemurder.
0: All of us ladies have a go-to bra that we pick over everything else in our closet over and over again. Honey Love's Crossover Bra is so comfortable, it's sure to be your new go-to. This bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. Plus, mesh detailing adds just a touch of sexy. This is the one bra you'll actually enjoy wearing and won't want to take off.
1: I am obsessed with mine. I have ordered quite a few since because now it's the only bra I want to wear. It's very funny because usually supportive, comfortable bras aren't very sexy. And last night I was changing and Nathaniel happened to be in the bedroom and he full on commented about it and how it looked on my body. And I was like, damn, all right, Honey Love, thanks for this.
0: <laughs> I love their bras, but it doesn't stop there. Honey Love has more than just bras. They have incredible, comfortable shapewear, tanks, and leggings for everyday support.
1: Yes, Honey Love's Legging 2.0 is another product that's making head waves. They hold you in without that too tight, uncomfortable feeling and are compressive, cooling, and wonderful to wear. Whether your New Year's resolution is to get up and get active or spend more time just comfortably lounging and having some you time, these leggings are the go-to for an everyday look or a workout at the gym.
0: Treat yourself to the best bra and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com lovemurder. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash lovemurder.
1: After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. And please, please, please support our show and tell them that Love Murder sent you. Start the new year with confidence. Thanks to Honey Love. Okay, Andy, how many hours a week would you guess you spend interacting with
0: Shopify at this point? Between our new merch store and website, plus the Ririku website, which has been powered by Shopify for years, I basically live there.
1: (laughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without
0: the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or, of course, selling cool vintage finds like me, Shopify has you covered.
1: Yes, those of you who shopped with us during the holiday season probably got to experience the new Shopify store that's just getting better every single day.
0: Yes, thank you so much for supporting us and also letting us get everything going with that. But I'm sure you've already noticed all of the benefits that there are compared to the old system. You can get order notifications, confirmations, track where your order is,
1: it's just honestly so much easier. I was ordering actually some stuff for myself and for presents that I wanted to give people in my life. And I have to say the user experience has been delightful.
0: I'm so happy to hear that.
1: Andy, did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States? And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Linen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries.
0: Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is possibility powered by Shopify.
1: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com/lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. shopify.com/lovemurder So this informant got popped for grand larceny by the NYPD, and to get a better deal, he offered to sell out a bigger fish. He claimed to know someone involved in the murder of Alex Algieri. He explained that this guy's name was Scott Paget. It's P-A-G-E-T, but on like four out of five of the shows I watched, it was Paget. Paget. And then in one of the shows, they said Scott Paget. (laughs) I'm not joking. It was Paget. But we're going to go with Paget. So Padgett was a clean cut college guy who came from a seemingly good family, but had gotten hooked on drugs and then he had gone down a bad path. The informant said that he was now working at a Miami area strip club and he had bragged about his connection to the murder. The authorities were eager to tie Paul Rydell to Alex's murder because he was absolutely the only one who had any motive or seemed like a good suspect at all. But the informant said, oh, yeah, he's definitely involved, but not the way the authorities thought. Rydell didn't want Alex dead. He was supposed to be dead. Paul Rydell had been the target and someone had screwed up big time. Shit. So he was right. He was right. Somebody was out to kill him. And it was a case of mistaken identity. It's really sad. It's so sad for Alex and his family and his loved ones. He was genuinely like this good, big puppy of a man who cared for
0: everyone and truly did not have an enemy in the world. Yeah, but that's what happens if you, what's that phrase? If you like lie with the pigs, you're going to get dirty.
1: Yeah, if you lie down with
0: dogs, you're going to get fleas.
1: And that's a shame, though, because he was really trying to break apart from Paul as Paul went down a bad path at this point. I know, but like... It's really sad. It's really sad. Both Paul and Alex were very big guys. They both were very muscly, tall, Italian looking guys. Yeah, they were like Italian cake. They basically looked like if the Property Brothers were crossed with like a bodybuilding Jersey Shore cast. That was kind of the look going on here
0: want to make that image go away.
1: <laughs> hey, it was, it was a look for the era. So not only did they have a similar look, they also both drove the same black SUV and had Dolphin Fitness bumper stickers in the exact same place, like in the back
0: window of their vehicles. Yeah. So they're twins. Yeah. And they usually tried
1: to take separate shifts so that one owner was always at the gym at any point. And so they both used the same parking spot. It was basically like the owner's spot. And so when they switched shifts, they parked in the same place. Yeah, it's like impossible to
0: differentiate.
1: Yeah. And there was so there were some different accounts I heard about the night in question, whether or not Paul was supposed to be working. On one account, I, I read that Paul actually usually did the night shift always. And that Wednesday was the only night he did not do it. And this was a Wednesday night. But then I also read that he was supposed to be working that night and that Alex had actually taken his shift for him because essentially Paul was supposed to be trying to get together with his wife, Leanne, again. They were supposed to be reconciling and they were working towards getting not remarried. They were still married, but like they basically had just called off the divorce and they were getting back together. And one of the reasons for that was Paul's drug use. And when he went out with his buddies, he essentially told his wife he was going to work and then left to go out to dinner and then use drugs. He might have been supposed to have been there that night as well. So it just really was that Alex was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, this was a theory that obviously Paul had suspected, but also the police had already explored. So they kind of came to a similar conclusion at some point during this investigation. There seemed to be an endless line of people who had motive to want Paul dead. Paul had started a beef with a rival gym owner. Paul owed a bookie over $25,000. Paul smoked crack cocaine with some disreputable men who began to believe in a crack-fueled paranoia that Paul was an informant for the police.
0: Oh, this is all bad vibes.
1: All bad vibes. Leanne had also talked to the police about receiving threatening messages in the mail. They had gotten something called a rat card where it meant that people suspected him of ratting out. There was some other messages. One of their windows had been broken at some point. So she said that he wasn't involved with the police, but people thought he was, and that's bad enough. And even his own mother, I guess, believed that he was maybe working with the police somehow. Also, apparently, Paul had pissed off a rumored mobster or mafia man. This supposedly connected mafia guy had exposed himself to the poor girl who ran the tanning beds at the gym. Oh, this is what happened as it was described. Please, please do tell. This poor girl who is just wiping down the tanning beds, putting the timers on and handing out those little stickers so so you got a nice little white Playboy bunny.
0: And the little towel. And the little towel. And the goggles. Don't forget the goggles.
1: Very important, the goggles. Had prepped the booth for the guy and he had apparently come out completely naked and told her that it was time for her to rub some tanning oil on him, sweetheart. Sir. I just can't think of a less sexy or more disgusting way to approach a woman who's just doing her job.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I think she was pretty young, too. I got the feeling that this was a teenager.
0: She's scarred for life.
1: Yeah, she was horrified. So she literally just dropped her jaw and ran for Paul because there's this giant man who has rumored mafia ties who is standing in his altogether in front of her. And so Paul was working that night and... He flipped out on the guy and essentially like went into the tanning booth and pulled him out by his ear. And the guy barely had time to put a tiny little tanning towel around his dick. And Paul pulled him out naked and like through the gym and threw him out into the parking lot. Yeah. So they they thought maybe. I mean, that guy was obviously humiliated. And Paul was like, you never come back here, you scumbag. Like, don't come here again. That obviously would have pissed off somebody, especially if they had some sort of mafia connection. It would seem like Paul had quite a few enemies. The informant knew that Scott Paget was kind of more along for the ride. According to what this informant is saying is that Scott copped to being the driver. And he said that he and his friend Rocco had driven from Florida to Long Island to do the hit. On the way back... To Florida, they had tossed the gun. But the informant did not know exactly why two guys from Florida who had never been to Long Island previously had come all that way to do the
0: hit. Yeah, that seems a little sus.
1: Yeah. So it was time for the detectives to get down to Florida and get in touch with Scott Paget or Paget. Paget. As you can imagine, Scott very much did not want to talk to the police about this. He was totally blown in by this guy. He really did try to dummy up. He tried to say that he didn't even know the guy that blew him in. He didn't know why he was saying that. But eventually, there was enough proof that they had against him that he decided to break down and confess. They also said that Scott just seemed like he was a good guy that had gotten into some trouble because they said he didn't have perp eyes. (laughs) Okay, I'm not... It was the description that they were given. Like, basically, he looked like he still had a soul. Like, he had not just given himself over to the underworld. And they basically thought that they could do a deal with him. He didn't seem like he was the one who was the shooter. He didn't seem like he was the one who had concocted this plan. But he absolutely had all the information about all of the moving parts of it. So they essentially said, let's cut a deal. You're still going to do hard time because you obviously were involved in this murder. But let's get the main players and save yourself from an LWOP situation. So Scott finally did talk, and he admitted that he and another guy who was a bouncer at the same strip club in Miami, Ralph Rocco Salierno, had driven from Florida to Long Island in a borrowed minivan with the express purpose of eliminating Paul Rydell. Scott admitted that he had driven the minivan And he had loaded the thirty-eight caliber revolver, but it was Rocco who had been the actual shooter. Okay. He said that afterwards, Rocco paid him three grand for his role in the murder. So, of course, the cops wanted to know, well, who is this guy, Rocco, and why did he want Paul dead? Was it the mob, the drugs, the gambling, the general assholery? No, Scott said. It was
0: Leanne.
1: Paul's wife.
0: What? He wanted to kill Paul to be with Leanne, but then accidentally killed Alex.
1: Yes. (sighs) And this was shocking to everyone involved because the police had talked to Leanne. Leanne had gone to Alex's funeral. All of Alex and Paul's friends loved Leanne. They felt like she was absolutely the one wronged in her relationship with Paul. Like she was this poor, innocent woman who loved her husband and had a baby and was trying to like, figure it out, but he was impossible. And she was also very close friends with Alex's girlfriend. So no one in a million years would have suspected that Leanne had anything to do with this murder plot. So (sighs) there was more to this too. There was something else. At this point in the investigation, Paul and Leanne had reconciled. Remember I was talking about how they had moved to Florida together and They'd called off their divorce and they were making another go at it. And in fact, at this point, Leanne had just given birth to their second child. She had a son from a previous marriage too, so it was her third son. And Scott Paget is saying that not only was this Rocco Salierno the hitman who Leanne had put up to the job to kill her husband that she wanted eliminated, that the baby that had just been born or was just about to be born at this time was actually Rocco's and not Paul's. Sounds right. So let's rewind and talk all about Leanne and Paul, how they met, how they fell in love, and what went so incredibly wrong. So I saw a different a couple different accounts. One said that Leanne was 26 when they met. Another account was that she was 29. In any case, she was I think just a couple years older than Paul when they met. Okay. She was bartending at a gentleman's club on Long Island called the Carousel. Paul was a client, but he had also been introduced to Leanne through some mutual friends, it sounds like, who frequented this gentleman's club. Paul later said that there was an immediate attraction, and they bonded because they were both in the same place in their lives, which I think what he meant was that essentially they were getting to a point when they're in their late 20s that they really want to go forward in their life. They want to start businesses. They want to have families they want to have more of a clean-cut existence than either of them had in the past. Obviously, Paul had had his own issues with drugs and he had spent some time in prison. And Leanne had been a teenage single mother. So she now had, when they met, like a 12 or 13-year-old boy. And she was obviously bartending in this gentleman's club and wanted to, you know, go back to school, grow her life, have different opportunities. So I think that... This was a time that they seemed like they were both on the same trajectory. And Paul would also say that he was attracted to her as a mother because she seemed very nurturing. And even though Leanne may turn out to be a manipulative murderess, by all accounts, she was a very good mother. (laughs) Yeah. So he said that he was attracted to how she was mothering her son as well. And Leanne's a cute girl. He liked that she was a good mom. He found her lovely. And it's a good thing he liked her as a mom because within... I think several months or a year of dating, Leanne was pregnant. Okay. Yeah, that happened quickly. Paul really wanted a family, and he and Leanne seemed to care about each other. He described it kind of like they were hanging out casually, then all of a sudden they were dating, and then boom, she's pregnant. And he wanted to do the, quote, right thing. hmm And I think at this point he had opened his gym, and he was doing very well financially. I think she wanted some stability in her life. And so I don't know if this was truly a love match, more like, a, oops, we got pregnant and let's, let's try to make a life out of this. Even though maybe we wouldn't have gone down this path, let's try to make the best out of this situation and see if we can have a really happy family. So they got married on July 30th, 1999 and Al was Paul's best man. Seven months later, their son Nicholas was born in February of 2000. By this time, the gym was doing very well, and Paul was able to buy the family a beautiful home on the ocean on Long Island's southern shore. So it's oceanside. Yeah. Despite the trappings of wealth, the couple was not doing well. Things were not great. Pretty much as soon as they had the baby, things went to hell. Paul was addicted to crack cocaine, and he would disappear for hours, if not nights at a time, just when Leanne needed him the most. She had... A young teenage son in the home, as well as a newborn baby. And he was not showing up for her. And in fact, he was still, as he called it, euphemistically partying. He was out partying and staying out late when she needed, I was like, crack cocaine is a little bit more than just partying, bruh. So he would go and he would do the things he needed to do at work, but then he would go out all night. And I think that's also why he ended up taking the night shifts of the 24 hour fitness because he then had an excuse to not be home at night, basically. According to Leanne's teenage son, Christopher, when Paul was using drugs, he was verbally abusive, physically intimidating. And it was like borderline physically abusive, at least if, if you're going on what teenage Christopher said. He said he had even threatened Leanne's father at some point and had tried to hit the man. There's a doctor on one of the shows that I watch that talks about the side effects of crack cocaine use, at least for your personality. And it can make the user extremely irritable, paranoid, and it amplifies aggression. Yeah. So this is not a good fit for a home that has a newborn baby.
0: Yeah. And someone who also has anger management issues.
1: Anger management issues. And I can imagine that having a teenage or preteen stepson who doesn't have any respect for you because you're treating his mom like crap is also not a good fit for managing your temper. So this was not a good time for anyone who was involved in this household. Leanne knew that Paul was a partier before she married him, but I think that she had optimistically believed that having a baby and having a very expensive and important business as well as a new home and a mortgage would focus him. It would have calmed him down and made him reprioritize his life, but obviously that had not worked. Paul was completely off the rails. Paul later admitted of this tumultuous time that he was absolutely not an ideal husband. He maintains that he never laid a hand on his wife or her son or their son, but he does admit he was an asshole. He said he was frequently out all night with his buddies and that was not what Leanne had signed up for. So she was reportedly, if you talk to people who knew Leanne, concerned about her children's safety, which I completely understand that. So she basically just took off in mid-June of 2000s. So the baby was only four months old. And Paul said that he got a call from his buddies who lived in the neighborhood. And they were like, uh, bro, there's moving trucks at your house. And so she, without warning, just loaded up all the furniture, $140,000 of his money and her kids and peace out to Florida where she would move in with her mother and her mother's girlfriend. So her mother was named Pat and Pat's longtime girlfriend was named Liz and she called her Aunt Liz. Paul should have seen this coming, obviously, but he felt very blindsided by the whole thing. Now, according to Leanne's family, like her mother and essentially stepmother and her son, Paul was very angry and very threatening. Now, according to Christopher, he didn't feel like Paul was angry that Leanne had left him or had taken the baby. He was mad that she had taken $140,000 of his money. Yeah. So they said that he was like making harassing phone calls, he was threatening them. And Christopher was under the impression that it was because he wanted the money back and he didn't care about Leanne or Nicholas. Now, if you ask, Paul, he said, I was, of course I was upset, but I was upset about my son being taken from me because he was only four months old and she just absconded to somewhere in Florida. He didn't know where she was and he didn't know when he was gonna see his baby again. So in either case, Paul was very upset about this. So he later said that this was kind of a rock bottom moment for him where he realized he needed to clean up his act because he didn't want to parent his son from 2000 miles away. And his own father had left when he was basically a baby, so he wasn't going to do that to his child. So Leanne was given temporary custody of the baby while the divorce was getting going. And Paul's visitation was contingent upon attending parenting classes and undergoing regular drug tests, which he totally did. He was very compliant with that. He stopped drugs at that time. And he ended up consulting with a divorce attorney, not because he wanted a divorce. He still wanted to try to give his family another shot because he was well aware that he had screwed it up. But the reason why he went to the divorce attorney is he wanted to see if it didn't work out, how he could get his son back or how he could be more present in his son's life. And his divorce attorney is on a lot of the shows too, almost all of them. And he said, well, you're in luck because under New York state law, The child can't be removed for more than 50 miles of where the established residence is. So they had established a residence together on Long Island, and she had just kind of absconded with the child to Florida, which is a no-no for the laws. She had not established a residence in another state that Paul had allowed, She had just left. And she also did not have a job. She didn't have any reason to be in Florida other than she wanted away from Paul and her parents, right? Yeah, her mother and Liz lived in Florida, but her father still lived on Long Island. So her father's up North. And so his argument is that he has ties to the business. He had two gyms at this point. They own a house there. This is where they had been living until she just took off. And the court agreed, the court agreed with Paul. So they essentially said, that she had a matter of months or days to bring Nicholas back or she would lose custody and they would order Nicholas into Paul's custody, which is a very tricky situation if you believe all the allegations against Paul, which honestly, I think some of the um, allegations against him are a little heightened because of there was a lot of emotion going on and he's just such a big guy that it's impossible to not be threatened by him. I don't think there was any other allegations that he was actually physically violent, but I mean, he's just a big guy. But then, I mean, he says it enough himself that like, yeah, he wasn't a good dad. He wasn't, he shouldn't have had full custody of his son by any stretch of imagination. Well, he is still using drugs, obviously. But now he's going to parenting classes. He's getting drug tested regularly. He's on the straight and narrow. And he also had childcare. He had daycares in his gyms. So there was like a built-in daycare. He had the child's room and toys and everything that the kid could want. So he's saying, if worse comes to worse, and I have to have full custody because she wants to live in Florida, I would rather have that and have him with me 100% of the time than never see my son. Yep. So that's what he's fighting about with Leanne. And Leanne was extremely pissed off about this. She wanted to start a whole new life in Florida, and she did not want to have to be pulled back to New York State. Uh, Earlier that year, when she had first arrived in Florida, Leanne and her de facto stepmother, her mom's girlfriend, had been introduced to a real tough guy named Ralph Salierno, who also went by the aliases Rocco and Randy. Rocco and Randy? Yeah. So he uses, his given name is Ralph, and then he used Rocco, and it seems like most of the people in the story knew him by Rocco, but he had another alias as Randy, so he stuck with those R names. There's many versions of the story about how these two got together. One version is that immediately upon arriving in Florida, Leanne felt that Paul was never going to give up and that he was never going to let her off the hook and let her just be happy and take his money and raise his kid and have nothing to do with it, which I think maybe she kind of assumed that he would because he had so little influence in baby Nicholas's life when they were there. But when he started getting a divorce attorney and calling her and saying he wanted to see his son, she was getting upset about that. And Leanne's stepmother, let's say Liz, apparently had some sort of mafia connections. She'd been raised in Brooklyn around people who were involved with the mafia. And so she started asking around in Florida to see if there was anyone who could take care of a problem. And apparently she met this guy who was previously from the New York area at the gym and through this chain of people ended up with Ralph Salierno. So Leanne and her mother maintained that when they first met Ralph, they didn't want him to kill Paul. They just wanted him to rough Paul up a little bit, to teach him a lesson, to say, you know, back off the the divorce, back off the custody, let Leanne live in Florida. That's the message that they wanted Ralph Saliarno to deliver.
0: I feel like that's not normally the message when you say, take care of someone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: What happens later is Pat, the mom, and Liz, the girlfriend, end up breaking up. And Pat, the mom, maintains that this was never part of the plan. They never wanted Paul to die. But Liz, the girlfriend, says that it was discussed killing him. So they, they have different stories about what the intended outcome was. Now, Ralph Salerno, also a bodybuilder, also a big guy, also like an Italian huge dude who was really tough looking and originally from the Eastchester area of New York. So uh, like a New York transplant down to Florida as well. So Leanne clearly has a type. (laughs) Yes. So, some say that basically, like, he was, he came in already as a hitman, and then the two of them struck up a relationship. There's another version of the story that says that she was introduced to him to take her mind off of Paul. Like, so there was an introduction so that they would be romantic. And then once they started hooking up, that was when Ralph said, Well, I could just take care of him for you. Okay. So in any case, either he came in looking to kill Paul Rydell, or he got involved with sweet Leanne and decided he wanted to kill Rydell, but it was always on the table. In any event, the decision was made that Paul had to die. And that was because Leanne would get the house, the gym. He had a life insurance policy. I feel like Paul had some shady cash laying around if she was able to steal $140,000 in cash uh-huh. <laughs> from him anyway. He was obviously remember member at the time Alex accused him of skimming from the top. So there's cash around. She would also have full custody of Nicholas and she would get to start a new life with Ralph. So a friend of Ralph said that he was aware of these conversations. Ralph had actually asked him to be the driver Scott Paget role. And he said, absolutely not. But he knew exactly what was going on. And what Ralph slash Rocco was supposed to be getting from this was $100,000 in cash. Okay. And basically starting a life with Leanne. They were going to sell their portion of the gym or sell the gym. They were going to sell the house and they were going to buy a new house together and they would get married. So he would get a bunch of cash. He'd get Leanne. He would get to slide into Paul's role but be a better father figure is what they both thought. And everyone also said that maybe Leanne had just married Paul because she was pregnant. And because of him opening the gyms, he seemed more financially stable than maybe some other people she had dated. And so it was less about passion for her and Paul, but there was a lot of passion with her and Ralph. Ralph Rocco Randy. Ralph Rocco Randy and her were Ralph Rocco Randying all over the place. So when she found out that she was going to be summoned back to New York or lose custody of Nicholas, she and Rocco came up with this plan that eventually they would figure out a way to kill Paul. But there was a court order that demanded that she return herself or at least Nicholas to New York no later than the end of October of 2000. So at this point, if you're Paul... He's thinking, thank God she has to bring my son back. And so she moves back. And I think she either moved back in with her dad or moved back into like a rental house near where her dad lived with his new wife, her stepmother,
0: her other stepmother, her
1: other stepmother. And divorce proceedings were set to begin on November 21st, 2000. So she moves back at the end of October with the baby. And then a month later, Paul's attorney got to the courthouse early to have the first hearing in their divorce. And he said that he was shocked when Paul walked in holding Nicholas, holding the baby. And right behind him was Leanne with the baby carriage. And they are looking very much like a happy little family. And Paul said, we're calling off the divorce. So can you withdraw whatever you need to withdraw? Because I don't want the divorce anymore. We're getting our family back together. So Paul doesn't know any of this business with Rocco, obviously. Of course not is Leanne already pregnant? No, she's not pregnant yet. So she's now back on Long Island and she's saying, let's give it another shot. She needs him to call off the divorce because the divorce can't be finalized before he's murdered. No, because then she won't get all the stuff. So Paul's divorce attorney essentially tells him, don't do this. Just postpone it. Like, don't take it totally off the books. Don't completely withdraw your petition. To end this marriage. Yeah, because they see
0: this stuff all the time.
1: They do. So they're like, oh, gosh, you know, you're going to come back to me in a week and be like, let's start the process again. And it's going to be so much more expensive and so much harder to, like, refile all of this versus let's just postpone it. And he's like, nope, withdraw the petition. Let's do this. This is my family. It's back together. He was off drugs. He was ready for Leanne. He was ready to be a good dad at this point. Meanwhile... This is all just a stall tactic. He would later say on my favorite version of this story was on who the bleep did I marry? Because Paul did who the bleep did I marry? Okay. He said, well, they're getting back together and she's living with him again during this period. She is going out to the street and making payphone calls. And so he was like, who are you calling that you can't talk to in our house? And she's like, my mom, you know, my mom's not really a big fan of you. I'm trying to break it in gently that we are giving our marriage another try and that I'm living with you. So I got to like go to the pay phone and call her. So she is still working up this murder scheme while he thinks they are reconnecting and he's already withdrawn his petition to divorce her. So savage. It's so savage. So they managed to muddle through the holidays together. Obviously, Leanne was not feeling it. She's just pretending. And it was on January 17th that she had given her lover and her lover's friend, Scott Paget a map essentially to Dolphin Fitness, as well as a photo of her husband so that they could come up and murder him. And unfortunately for everyone involved in this, except for Paul, they got the wrong guy. So, of course, after this happens, Leanne had realized that Ralph Rocco had killed the wrong guy. According to a friend of Ralph's who was with him when they discovered they had killed Alex and not Paul, Leanne was beside herself. She was so angry. That's your baby daddy that shot the wrong guy. Actually, she wasn't. In January, she was not yet pregnant. So this is the craziest thing
0: to me. So that's not her that she got pregnant with him she after pregnant, he shot the wrong guy. after
1: he shot the wrong guy. It's like, babe, what are you doing? Apparently, when him and Scott were coming back, they were like, oh, yeah, we did it. Oh, we killed that bastard. And what Alex could not make out, which, which was, I guess I'm like more supposing he couldn't make it out because he turned, was he said, hi, Paul, and then he shot him. But he was talking to Alex. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so he, all the way back to Florida, they thought that they were... They were, like, high-fiving each other in the car, drinking Mountain Dew.
1: Yeah, they were little Billy Big Balls over here who had just killed the bad, abusive husband of Ralph Rocco's lover. And then when they went over to, like, this friend's house, apparently, they were looking online, and they said that gym owner Alex Algieri had been murdered. So Leanne was allegedly—now, she denies all this. She denies that she had any part of this. But allegedly, according to people who were present and who would later testify, she was very upset. She called Rocco names and she was like, how am I supposed to look in his girlfriend's eyes? How am I supposed to go to this funeral and look at his parents and pretend like I don't know anything about this or I didn't have something to do with this? Like she was upset about this. Well, yeah, she should be. Yeah. Paul later says on the Who the Believe Did I Marry that he always thought it was funny that she didn't cry at the funeral. She was a generally emotional person, but yet she wasn't crying there. But Leanne was nothing if not opportunistic. She used Alex's death to convince Paul that obviously he had been the intended target of the attack and that they had to get to Florida. And yes, his divorce attorney even said when he was going through the papers to refile them because essentially in his own files, because they were calling off the divorce, he saw something very strange. When she was still fighting, having to come back to New York State, she said that she needed to stay in Florida because she had heard rumors that Paul was going to be the target of a mafia hit. She said that before her lover killed Alex Algeri, oh So she God. was trying to pave the way to start that conversation to make it seem like Paul had enemies for when it did happen it would seem like it had nothing to do with her her bad marriage because think about all the people I even told you about that potentially wanted Paul dead. Yeah. So she was already laying the groundwork. So when this happens, she goes, there's no way, Paul. There's no way that they were trying to kill Alex. No way. They were coming for you and you know it. And he was scared to death that she was right. And he, I mean, she was right. She knew. (laughs) She knew because it was her. (laughs) Exactly. So he did say, yes, absolutely. Let's get a house down in Florida. I'm going to try to stay with you as much as I can, but I have to run my businesses up here. So with his unsuspecting permission, she established residency in Florida on February 1st, 2001. Now he thinks he's just doing what he can to keep his family safe. But the law says that if with Paul's blessing, they together establish residency in a different state for at least six months, then the baby, it cannot be compelled to go back to New York because he also established that residency with her for six months. And that's where the baby lives now. It's been six months. So he thinks that they're back on the mend and that they're a family again. And he's making it work. I mean, he is doing some crazy every week flights in order to run his business and be there for his family. And she, every chance she can get, especially when he's out of town, is back together with her lover who botched the hit. They even considered trying to kill him while he was down in Florida with her too. And it just didn't work out. The opportunity didn't really work out. So exactly like six months and like one day after she had technically established residency, while he's in New York, she files for divorce.
0: Wow. So shady.
1: She knew the laws. She was just biding her time and staying with him until she could make sure that she never had to come back. Now she's going to get less stuff because he's not murdered, but it's better than jail time. And it looks like she's gotten away with it. But Paul, of course, is taking this hard and he's taking it even harder because at the time that she filed for divorce, which was sometime, I think, in August or September of 2001, She was pregnant. She was pregnant and she was due with a baby that was supposed to be coming at the very end of December or early January. And that was his baby, he believed. He said that they had even already talked about naming the baby Paul Jr. He knew it was a boy, he thought it was his boy. Later on, Leanne will admit that the baby was conceived in late March when her husband was out of town and it was Ralph Salierno's baby. His name's going to be Ralphie Rocco
0: Randy Jr.
1: <laughs> it was, they n- ended up naming the baby Zachary, but here's where the Karma Fairy really comes into this story was that obviously Leanne is still screwing around with Rocco after they've moved to Florida. And she would later say that one week after she conceived his child, she found Ralph Rocco Randy in bed with another woman. Stop. Mm-hmm. So she ended up breaking up with him. Ugh. So she ends up breaking up with him. And then I think that she was telling Paul that it was his baby so she could get mm-hmm. child support from him. Oh, so shady. That's so shady. So if you're Paul, you are just having a really hard time because now his wife has completely outmaneuvered him. He is starting 2002 without his wife, without his son, and he has no legal recourse this time to get his son to move back to New York, people are still suspicious of him. And he's also still grieving the loss of truly his best friend. If you see him talk about his relationship with Al, with Alex, it's clear that he has a lot of regrets about where they were in their relationship at the time of Alex's death, and that there was so much love between the two of them. So now he's just, quite frankly, quite depressed. Things are rough. There's no answers in Alex's murder. His wife's gone for good. He can't get his son back. Things are looking really shitty. And then also, Leanne is giving birth to the child he thinks is his own son, and she won't tell him what's going on. So Leanne ended up having the baby on Christmas Eve 2001, December 24th, and he found out through some friends that she was in labor. He didn't know where she was because she didn't want him to know where she was. So he said that he was calling hospitals in the area to where they lived, trying to find out what was going on with his wife and his baby. This is a rough time. But things were going to get a lot worse before they got better for Paul. But at least there was going to be some answers because it was roughly this time period where the informant ratted out Scott Paget. Paget. And then in turn, Scott ratted out Rocco. And in turn, Rocco ratted out Leanne. Yeah. So Ralph Rocco had left Florida after I think Leanne had dumped him. He ended up actually in New York again, where he was arrested in Westchester for a gun violation in the summer. And then he had been picked up at his father's house in East Chester in spring of 2002. So this is early spring after Scott has ratted him out. His son was probably three months old, I think, at this time. And they picked him up for the first degree murder of Alex Algeri. Now, Ralph initially tried to say that it was all bullshit until he saw the confession from Scott. And then he sang like a canary himself. In fact, the investigators say that He was a lot easier not to crack than they thought he was going to be. Really? Yeah, he kind of opened up a lot and spilled the beans. And he admitted that everything Scott said was true, basically, only he tried to play it off like it was Scott's idea somehow to get money and that Scott was the shooter and he was not. But of course, the authorities did not believe that. He also did initially in his first confession, try to say that Leanne hadn't expressly instructed him to kill Paul. Like kind of, he was like, well, you know, I knew that there was some money and I knew because of Leanne generally what this guy did. He did try, it seemed like to not implicate his baby mama. But later on, he full on admitted that she'd been part of the plot, providing him with a photo of Paul. The address of his particular dolphin fitness because it was kind of like one of those things where you're part of a franchise. So there was, I think in the tens, different like dolphin fitnesses on Long Island at this time.
0: Whoa, really?
1: Yeah, it was a franchise. So that was one thing that Paul later says. He's like, she tried to say she wasn't part of this. She would never want the father of her child dead. He's like, how else would he know which dolphin fitness to go to? Yeah. And basically Rocco told the cops, that she was the one who was pushing for this. Also, she had given him pictures of his car. How would they also know how to pull into the employee parking lot and where the door was? Apparently, a map had been drawn, too, with the shape of the club. So Ralph was arrested, and sometime after this, so was Leanne. Poor Paul was told that Leanne's third son was not his baby, not by Leanne, not even by one tender-hearted police officer or anything. He found this out in his front lawn by a news reporter shouting
0: at him. Oh my God.
1: This poor guy's just trying to get on with his day and there's a bunch of news reporters on his lawn and they're going, hey, how do you feel about your wife getting pregnant with the man who killed your best friend? And he's like, what? What are you talking about? And they're like, Rocco, Ralph, Randy, Sally Arno. He knocked up your wife. That's not your baby. And he's like, what? That's. Ruthless. That is the worst Moripovich outcome I have ever heard. It is not your baby. And instead the seed of the man who killed your best friend and implicated you in the murder. And I'm gonna tell you right on your front lawn. (laughs) With the cameras in his face. Oh, that poor man. His divorce attorney was on, I think it was the who the bleep did I marry. He described finding out that way that it was like being hit in the face with a
0: hundred-pound dumbbell. Yeah, I'd say worse.
1: Yeah. The police had both Ralph and Scott's confessions, though Ralph slash Rocco's defense attorneys later tried to have it thrown out. They did not successfully get it thrown out, but they would later argue that it was coerced. They also found the murder weapon after Scott led them to a creek where he had dumped it on their way back to Florida. And they found it, but it was a little too rusty to be able to do ballistics to match exactly the bullets because they could not test fire it because it had been in the water too long, but it was Scott positively identified it and said that was the murder weapon. They also had the testimony of Mark Paglianti, who was one of the friends who said that Leanne was absolutely part of this plan and had overheard her telling Rocco to kill her ex and also telling him what kind of reward he would get if he did so. For some reason, they give him a pseudonym in the book and they call him Big Balls, which is really funny because I used that as a euphemism earlier (laughs) or a fake nickname earlier. And that's probably why it was in my head in the book Lethal Embrace. So yeah, Paglianti would go on to testify that he was present when Leanne essentially ordered the hit. In February of 2004, three years after Alex Algieri was tragically killed, Leanne and Ralph's joint trial began. And this was a very strange trial. I do not know if they do this anymore. It was called a double jury trial, meaning that there was one trial for the co-defendants, but there was one jury that was supposed to decide Leon's fate, and there was a separate jury that would determine Ralph Rocco's fate, essentially. And I guess that they used to do this because it would be more efficient and it would cost the taxpayers less money to have it all happen at one time. But it sounds like it was a real pain in the butt because there were certain things that... The juries couldn't hear about the other co-defendant because it is their constitutional right not to have their co-defendant somehow make them look guilty. So they were constantly bringing these juries back in and out because one jury couldn't hear what the other jury got to hear. And it sounds like all the attorneys had to say several things over and over and over again. And it wasn't that bad for the prosecution because the prosecution had one narrative, one story about how they think this all went down and how both Leanne and Rocco played their parts in it. But this was much harder on the defense attorneys because usually a defense attorney rolls on the co-defendant. So they are in front of two separate juries having to keep track of basically two defenses. They're fighting the prosecution and alleging that what the prosecution is saying is not correct. But then they're also fighting the co-defendant's counsel. So this sounds like kind of a nightmare altogether. Yeah. So in this case, the state argued that Leanne was the mastermind and that she had seduced her lover into being the muscle. Leanne hated Paul. She considered him abusive. But it wasn't enough to just get away from him. She wanted his money. With Paul dead, she stood to inherit his entire estate, including his businesses, as well as his life insurance policy. She would also be free to run off into the sunset with her murderous lover and not have to share custody of Nicholas. They presented Scott and Paglianti as witnesses to that effect, that she was part of this. Leanne's attorney argued that Leanne had nothing to do with the murder. And that all of the witnesses that said so were lying low lives who had all been charged with various crimes. I guess Paglianti had been popped for drugs. So he had spent some time inside for some drug offenses, too. So he's saying this guy is basically a hitman, and the other one's a low life drug dealer. And they both are making up this story in order to get reduced sentences because Leanne had nothing to do with this. There's no physical evidence that she was connected to the murder at all. And in fact, she had decided to leave Ralph Rocco and go back and fix her family and try to make it work with this horrible man, Paul, who had been so abusive towards her, but she wanted her family back together. And Ralph went totally cuckoo on his own out of jealousy and anger. And he, independently of her, had come up and done the hit And she had no idea that her lover had had anything to do with it until they were all arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So that's what her attorney is saying. (laughs) Leanne's attorney presented her as an abused woman who was manipulated and controlled by violent men. This was kind of funny. Leanne, he said, was attracted to these horrible men who abused her because at the tender age of 11, her mother had had a lesbian affair and had... Walked out on the family, and it had apparently made Leanne choose horrible men. Oh her poor mom <laughs> I know although I gotta say I feel worse for her dad because her dad was cheated on and walked out upon, and then her mom and her mom's girlfriend did seem to have something to do with this murder plot, some involvement I mean like great for her mom for like freaking out of the closet, living her life, living her truth but not great on her mom for maybe being part of a murderous plot. (laughs) Support lesbians don't support murder plots. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So the prosecution pointed out that Ralph and Scott, so even though Ralph was originally from the New York area, he had actually never been to Long Island specifically. And Scott, I don't even think, had ever set foot in New York State in general. So they were saying how would they know where to go? How would they know out of all the dolphin fitnesses to go to that dolphin fitness? Where would they have gotten a map? Where would they have gotten a picture of this man they've never met before? How would they know that he drove a Yukon? Like, so she was just randomly in conversation telling her lover, like, here's a picture of my husband. Here's a map of his gym, but definitely don't kill him. Yeah, no. And that's what Paul brings up too. He's like, only she knew my schedule. Think about it, if he was supposed to work that night, Yeah. She was the one calling the shots. Totally. She planned the whole thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Ralph argued that his confession was coerced and that everyone was lying. So he's also agreeing. (laughs) He's agreeing that everyone's lying. Only he's saying, but I didn't do it either. And he says, I can prove it because I have a witness that will testify to my whereabouts on that exact evening. The witness was a 27-year-old exotic dancer who took the stand and claimed that the very night in question, she and Ralphie Rocco Randy were getting Randy on their first date. She said that this first date lasted from 4.30 in the afternoon to 5.30 in the morning. Wow. He picked her up from where she worked, apparently. They went out to dinner. They went out to a club. They went out dancing. And then they went home and knocked boots for quite a few hours. She said that it it was a good date and they really hit it off because they ended up dating for over a year after that. And why she knew for sure that this was on January 17th was because it was their anniversary. There's like 35 different state witnesses that say where Ralph Rocco was. So she's the only one that is completely uncorroborated in this situation. We think she might have got her dates mixed up. Yeah, so I do not think that the jury took that very seriously. After five weeks of testimony, both juries were sent out to deliberate. So Ralph's jury came in hot. They only deliberated for four hours and they came back with a guilty, guilty verdict. And he was eloped. would So he remains in prison to this day. I believe he has unsuccessfully tried to appeal. It seems very likely that he will end his days in prison. Yeah. Poor Ralphie Rocco Randy. Mm Mm-hmm. Leanne's jury took considerably longer to come to a verdict. They were deliberating for four full days versus Ralph's four hours.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. So given that, what do you think her jury said? I think guilty still. They did say guilty. They did say guilty, but this was a hard one. There was a lot of debates. I think that there was a couple standouts that really had a hard time believing that she was an active part of this. Her defense attorney was very convincing. And so they recommended a more lenient sentence than Rocco Ralphie Randy's. And she ended up getting 27 years to life. So she has the possibility of parole. She was supposed to have her earliest parole date in 2027, which would be coming up. Except for I read this Cinemaholic article by Sunak Sengupta that came out in May of 2023. Uh Uh-huh. And he wrote in it that he could not seemingly find where she was still in prison. She was supposed to be in the Bedford Hills facility. And that he believed presumably she was released on parole. So I asked Heather, who's our assistant, to look into it. And she looked in the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility number with her inmate number. It does not appear that she's there. She also looked up her name and her maiden name. So I don't know if it seems like Leanne may have gotten out early for some reason. And I would not be surprised if she's going by a different name because she wrote a prisoner and or her new husband wrote a prisoner and she has a new married name.
0: Wow. That's
1: just my... Wild speculation. So we do not know. It seems like Leanne may be already out. Wow. Okay. Yes. Scott
0: Paget,
1: or Paget, got 15 years to life, and he has since been released as well. He had pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. As for Paul, it is abundantly clear. He's on almost all of the shows, because, gosh, there's so many of them. There's, like, a Snapped Killer Couples. There's a show called Finally Caught. Scorned Love Kills, Who the Believe Did I Marry, another show called Pretty Dangerous. There's even a British show about this on Sky TV. It's very clear that he has definitely overcome his crack smoking days. He is just, he's gained weight. He looks like this cuddly, sweet, like big old teddy bear. He said to the authors of Lethal Embrace that he has given up his bodybuilding days and now he just eats devil dogs on the couch with his son and lets his love handles grow. <laughs> He's very sweet. When Leanne was arrested, Paul was given emergency custody of their son, Nicholas, and the father and son duo have thrived together. It's very clear how much he loves his son. Paul has since remarried, and they have added a little sister to the mix. So he now Aww, has a daughter. Cute. Yeah, there's a picture of them on the Who the Bleep Did I Marry? It's very cute. He has expanded Dolphin Fitness and renamed it. Paul bought the bowling alley next door and expanded the athletic facility into a gym called Big Al's.
0: Big Al's in honor of his friend.
1: In honor of his best friend. So now it's Big Al's gym. Oh! In 2015, he was featured in a Long Island Business News article where Paul revealed that they currently had, this is back in 2015, 9,000 active gym members. He had also expanded into a nutrition program and a healthy restaurant. He had another location on Long Island. However, I did try to look into this. It seems like based on some Google and Yelp searches that I did, the place might be closed. The Amityville location, at least, might be closed.
0: Yeah, I mean, COVID was hard, too, for gyms and stuff.
1: Very hard, especially I could imagine that the overhead was very high because this was a gigantic facility. You said the article was 2019. 2015 was the article that I read. So hopefully Paul and his family are doing well out there and on to bigger and better things. And last but certainly not least, let's remember that this story is really about Alex. Alex gets lost in all of this because he wasn't the intended target. This was just a big hearted man who had overcome his past, who was doing all the right things, who loved deeply and whose life was ended all too soon because of stupidity and greed. Let's pour one out for Alex. Absolutely. In conclusion, it's great to be tight with your best friend and even to go into business with them or start a podcast. But Andy, I don't think it's the best idea for us to be total twinsies as far as how we look, dress, what cars we drive, and parking in the same parking spot, especially if one of us had many enemies and the other did not. Yeah, don't forget the bumper sticker.
0: The bumper sticker in the exact same place. Yeah, and let's just all steer clear, staying on the car theme of crack cocaine. Yeah, crack is whack.
1: Crack is whack, folks. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets mistakenly murdered. Love y'all, bye.
0: Bye.